0: Good morning. I got to tell you, I never imagined I would preach a sermon wearing a Wonder Woman t-shirt. I never imagined I would own a Wonder Woman t-shirt, but now I do, and here I am. At least it's not a Wonder Woman costume. It's not that I don't like Wonder Woman. I'm just more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, although I am pretty excited about the Batman vs Superman movie that's coming out in March. Can't wait to see the Dark Knight go at it with the Man of Steel. I'm also excited about that movie because they're going to be introducing again to the silver screen for the first time since the 70s, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, the character, was created in the 1940s to be a female counterpart to heroes like Batman and Superman. The creator of Wonder Woman was concerned that comics were dominated by male visions of heroism, and he wanted to create a strong female character that could go toe-to-toe with the men and do so in a thoroughly feminine way. In fact, many of the stories early on about Wonder Woman are her rescuing her boyfriend, Steve Trevor, from danger, much like Superman would rescue Lois Lane. She was intended to be a role model for young women, demonstrating that men didn't have a monopoly on virtues like courage and justice. Unfortunately, the world of comics and superheroes doesn't really have a great track record with portraying women. It's been sad because as we have been looking for images to use over the course of this series on superheroes, it's been hard to find many images of female superheroes that don't depict them more as sex objects than heroes. It's actually interesting. When they announced the actress who was going to be playing Wonder Woman in the upcoming movie, the internet erupted with commentary. And you know what the fuss was all about? People were concerned that the actress that had been selected, who was a rather slender woman, was not, uh, how should I say it? well endowed enough for the character, or should I say, the costume. They weren't concerned about her acting ability or what takes she might put on an old hero. Uh, the sort of things that people usually talk about when movies are being cast. They were concerned about her measurements. Because I guess what's important about a woman? Is it her strength? Her courage? Is it her character? No, it's whether or not she looks good for the men. Today we're continuing in our series called Heroes, and we're looking at different biblical superheroes over the course of this series, and we're asking the question, what actually makes them heroic? And today our hero is Esther, a woman who, a lot like Wonder Woman, uh, everybody focused on her looks, her beauty. But the reason she really was a hero was because of her courage. Uh, Esther was a Jewish orphan who became the queen of the Persian Empire, And she managed to save the people of Israel from destruction. There's a whole book of the Bible with her name on it that tells the story of how this happened. The book of Esther is an incredible book. I have really enjoyed studying it over the last few weeks. It's an amazingly well-told story. It's full of excitement and intrigue, lots of suspense. It's actually funny. It might even be the funniest book in the Bible. Uh, There's so much about this book that I would love to share with you. But we're just going to be able to focus on one event in the story, the moment where Esther becomes a hero. And that moment is found in Esther chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Esther is found right in the middle of the Bible. If you open up kind of halfway through, you'll probably land in the book of Psalms. That's a big book. And if you flip back just two books, you'll find Esther. And if you're having trouble, don't worry about it. That's why God gave you a table of contents. Before we dig into this chapter, let me give you some background on what's going on. In the book of Esther, the people of Israel are in exile. When God brought Israel into the land of Canaan, he told them, all right, the people who were here before were very wicked. That's why I'm taking the land from them and giving it to you. But you need to know as you come in that if you act like the people who were here before, the same thing is going to happen to you. I'm going to take the land away from you and you're going to have to leave. And that's exactly what happened. Israel was unfaithful. They abandoned the Lord and they started worshiping other gods. And they engaged in all sorts of violent and sexualized forms of worship, including temple prostitution and child sacrifice and much more. They exploited the land, they exploited the poor. And so God judged them just like He judged the people before them. In 586 BC, just a generation after Josiah, the king we talked about last week, the Babylonian Empire invaded and they destroyed Jerusalem and took the people captive. The book of Esther is set roughly 100 years after that event. And in the meantime, the Persian Empire has come through and conquered the Babylonians and the rest of the Middle East. And during that time, a few of the Jews, a few Israelites were permitted to go back to the promised land, people like Ezra and Nehemiah. But most of the Jews were scattered around the empire, and they were living as minorities in a culture that at best was tolerant of them, but many times was overtly hostile. This was one of those times. In the story of Esther, the Jews are being specifically targeted by a man who wants to destroy them. That man's name is Haman. And from what we can tell from the book of Esther, Haman is an insecure little man. He just wants everybody to praise him and recognize him and give him honor. And he's also a very powerful man. Uh, The emperor of Persia, King Xerxes, has promoted Haman to the second highest rank in the entire empire, just under the king himself. Uh, And and just a a little side note here, Um, I'm going to call the king in this story Xerxes. Uh, That is the name that's used in the translation we typically use here at Christ Community. Uh, But you may look in your translation and see the name Ahasuerus, which sounds nothing like Xerxes. I I don't get it. Um, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew version of his name. Xerxes is the Greek version of his name. Some translations choose one, some choose the other. So if I say Xerxes, you see Ahasuerus. Don't get confused. We're talking about the same person. Sorry about that. I didn't do it. Not my fault. Um, Back to Haman, though. Insecure but powerful. And that is a deadly combination. When someone who is insecure is given great authority, that almost always means someone is going to get hurt. Insecurity plus power usually equals abuse. As part of Haman's promotion, the king has ordered that all people, including court officials, bow down to Haman every time he passes by. And for the most part, people do this. Except for one man. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew, and he's Esther's older cousin. He's actually the man who raised Esther after her parents died. And he's some kind of an official in the king's court. And for whatever reason, it might have been religious, it might have been personal, we don't know, but he didn't want to bow down to Haman. And here's how Haman reacts. I'll read to you from uh, chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged, Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Well, that escalated quickly. Haman hates the idea so much of even one person not honoring him that he's willing to commit genocide to get revenge. So he goes to the king, and he actually tricks the king into passing a law that on a certain day, all of the people in the empire are allowed to attack the Jews, kill them, and take their stuff. He's hoping to make it so that in one big sweeping motion, he can wipe Mordecai and all of his people off the face of the earth. So so the Jews have this death sentence hanging over them. What do you do in the face of a situation like that? It's such an overwhelming problem. I mean, what do you do when you look out into the world and you see things like this? Because it it didn't end here. Haman is not all that unique in human history. There's so much suffering in the world, so many injustices, poverty and human trafficking and abortion and racism and persecution of Christians and on and on the list goes. Where do you begin with this stuff? You know, I'm one person. What can I do in the face of that? And the people who do actually have the power, they're like Haman. They use their power in selfish ways and corrupt ways. They do it for personal gain. How can he stand against that? Even if you kind of lower your gaze and just sort of look at the things that are nearby you, things with your friends and family and neighbors, it's tough. I mean, she lost her job and he lost his wife and their kid was born with special needs. What can you even do? What do you have to offer? And then you come to church and you hear preachers like me and we say things like, go out and change the world, make an impact, make a difference, bring hope and, 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 and healing and bring the good news of the gospel and, and fight for justice and reconciliation and on and on. And you think, that sounds nice, but seriously, me? You feel like the people in the video that we just watched. Powerless, overwhelmed. And here's where things get even worse. It seems a lot of the time like God is silent. That's actually one of the most interesting things about the book of Esther. God is not mentioned once. No mention of him. There are virtually no references to anything religious at all. No prophets, no prayers, no miracles, nothing. At first glance, it appears to be a purely secular story. Does that sound like your life? Overwhelming problems? No sign of God? That's what it looks like when you look out into the world sometimes. Well, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, here's what Mordecai and the Jews did. They took up a lament, just like what we did earlier in this service. They let their fear and their anger and their sorrow be expressed in words. Let's read in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. What are the Jews going to do here? Who are they going to turn to? Well, they turn to Esther. But Esther has a problem. Esther's problem is that she is silenced. And I say that specifically, I don't mean she is silent, as if she could speak, but she isn't. She is silenced. There are factors in her life, both internal and external, that prevent her from being able to speak out. One of those factors is her social class. Esther is the queen. She is living in the most luxurious place on the planet at the time. When it comes to comfort, she doesn't lack for anything. And this actually keeps her insulated from the problems of other people. Just look how she responds to Mordecai in verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of all that sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and he ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. You catch that? Esther doesn't know what's going on. She's unaware of the edict. She doesn't know how the Jews have reacted. She is completely out of the loop here. Her wealth, her privilege have made it so that not only does she not have to experience suffering, she doesn't even have to be aware of other people who are suffering. And let's be honest, this happens to us sometimes too, doesn't it? I mean, I read the news every day, and I I read most of my news online, and I can choose to read any story that I want. And I'll be totally real with you, I often pass over stories about tragic things that are happening in other parts of the world. And and it's not just because I don't want to hear about sad things, it's actually to be honest, because I'm bored. It doesn't relate to me. I'm not connected to it. And so I just don't have that much interest in reading about it. I, I'm comfortable. If it's something doesn't affect someone that I know directly, nothing forces me to pay attention to it. Uh, this can happen even close to home. Uh, I grew up in Wheaton and Glen Ellen, which are uh, pretty safe, pretty wealthy areas. But I also grew up in a foster family. Uh, where we took in uh, teenage girls who had uh, experienced some serious abuse, serious neglect. And it always surprised me because I would hear people frequently make comments about our area, maybe kids at school, and they say, oh, this isn't the real world. The, the, people are so sheltered here. Nothing bad ever happens in places like this. And I would think that's, that's so strange. I mean, in one sense, I knew what they were saying. But in another sense, I was like, well, why do I have so many foster sisters then? I mean, they're all from around this area. What do you mean no bad things are happening? They're, they're from this county. It's, they're, they're neighbors. The thing was, if they were comfortable in their own homes. And they didn't realize that just down the street, someone was suffering. And I'll be honest, I would have been oblivious too if it hadn't been brought into my own home. Well, Esther is unaware of what's going on with the Jews. So Mordecai tells her. Let's keep reading in verse 6. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai says Esther you've got to help us out you've got to go do something but again Esther has this problem she's silenced and this time it's not because she's unaware of the issue she's now been informed this time her problem is her gender it's important to know the story of how Esther became queen because she wasn't always queen the queen before her was a woman named Vashti And one day, King Xerxes decided that he was going to show off his great wealth to all of the people in the empire. And so he gathered his nobles and his military leaders, and he paraded in front of them all of his possessions, his money and his treasures and all the wonders from the royal storehouses in Persia. And then after that, he decided he would demonstrate his generosity. And so what he did is he opened up the royal wine cellar for an entire week to let all of the people who worked in the capital of Susa to to drink as much as they want. And then on the seventh day, the, the text tells us that Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine. The actual Hebrew word that's translated there is "krunk." Xerxes, in the height of his drunkenness, gets this idea. He summons Queen Vashti and he says, why don't you dress up real nice and put on your royal crown and come and, and show everybody just how lovely you are. Now, this was not some sort of kind of awkward expression of loving pride in his wife. No, Xerxes was treating Vashti just like all of his other possessions. Look, here's some jewels. Here's some statues. Here's my smoking hot wife. She was a trophy wife. She was a status symbol. She was there to make her husband look good, to show off his power and his success. You see, in the Persian court, the measure of a man was his power and authority. And the measure of a woman was her sex appeal. And I'm so thankful we don't live in a society like that anymore. Vashti refuses to come. Maybe because she thought it was demeaning. Maybe for another reason. I don't really know. But what we do know is it sends Xerxes into a fit of rage. How dare she disobey me? How dare she defy my orders? And all the men who were with him in the royal council, they were concerned too. They saw what happened and they were concerned that if other people, other women, heard about what Vashti did that then they would start disobeying their husbands too. And so they issued a decree, a law for the entire empire, making it the rule that every man should be the the ruler over his own household because that's what great leaders do. They they pass a law to make sure people will follow you. But now Xerxes doesn't have a queen. So what's he going to do? How's he going to get one? Well, he sends his servants to gather all of the most beautiful virgins in all of the land and bring them into his harem. And he's decided he's going to select one of these girls to be his new queen. It's interesting. We actually found uh, the uh, uh, Persian uh, transcript of this edict recently in an archaeological dig. And here's what it says, translated from the the Persian. Got a long list of ex-lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane. But I got a blank space baby. And I'll write your name. (laughs) It's a a rough translation. Um, Who knew that Taylor Swift was so into Persian history? I don't want you to get the wrong impression about what's going on here. This is not, as some have put it, a beauty pageant to find out who will be crowned the next Miss Persia. No, this is the way the contest works. Every virgin was going to be brought into Xerxes' chamber one at a time, and he was going to try them out for a night. And the one that he liked the most would become queen. The rest would be sent back to the harem for the rest of their lives, and maybe once or twice in their life they would be summoned for another night with the king. This was no beauty contest. This was rape. And Esther was chosen. I'm sure that part of the reason was she was not like Vashti. Up until chapter 4, Esther's only notable qualities are that she's pretty and that she's compliant. She looks good, she's good in bed, and she does what all the men in her life tell her to do. And that's exactly what Xerxes and the Persian nobility want. They want women who make men look good and do what they're told. And that is why Esther is silenced. She's been asked to go before the king and plead on behalf of her people, but she hasn't been given a voice to do so. She was chosen specifically because she doesn't rock the boat, but now that's exactly what she needs to do. I also wonder if Esther was hesitant because of the fact that she had been keeping her nationality a secret. And you see no one knew she was Jewish. She had been quiet about that. She wasn't like Daniel or Ezra or Nehemiah, uh, other Jews who had been in the Persian court and had been open about their faith. She'd been hiding it the whole time. She probably hadn't been worshiping God real faithfully. She hadn't been following the Jewish law real closely. Spiritually, her faith is basically a non-factor here. And I can imagine that she felt hesitant now uh, proclaiming that she was a Jew when nothing in her life had ever shown that that was important to her. I've been silent all this time. Why speak up now? You ever felt that way? You feel God's stirring in your life, maybe to do something, maybe to step up, take ownership of your faith, but you've been wandering for so long that you wonder if you can even come back. I have a feeling Esther felt that way. Well, the definitive factor that silenced Esther was the, the fact that no one was allowed to approach the king uninvited for any reason whatsoever. Look at verse 11. This is Esther's reply to Mordecai. She says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And that seems to settle it. I mean, she's not allowed to approach the king. She hasn't been invited. Maybe she's a little bit out of his uh, good graces at the moment. So she says, "I, I just can't go. But then Mordecai replies, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and carried out all of Esther's instructions. We're going to dig into this section a little bit here because here is the place where Esther finds her voice and becomes a biblical hero. The the first thing that Esther does to become a hero is that she stands in solidarity with God's people in need. She's in solidarity with God's people in need. Uh, Mordecai in verse 13, he points out, don't think that just because you're living in the palace that this isn't going to affect you. Uh, don't think that you're insulated from this. Uh, this is a, a problem for not some Jews, but all Jews. This is, this is a problem for Esther. At the end of the conversation, it seems like Esther finally gets this. And In verse 15, she says, all right, for the next three days, my servants and I, we're going to fast just like all the rest of the Jews are doing. It's her way of saying, your problem, the, the problem that's out there is going to be a problem for me in here. This is what we mean by solidarity with people in need. It means that we identify with a group closely enough that their concerns become our concerns. We allow their burdens to become our burdens. Uh, The Apostle Paul describes the solidarity between followers of Christ by saying, if one part of the body suffers, then all parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, then all rejoice with it. That's why we're supposed to be people who weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. What does this look like in life? Well, for most of us, it starts off small with the circle of people that are closest to us. It starts off in our home with people that we see day in and day out. How are you doing with this? Uh, when your roommates come home and they're talking about the frustrations of their day, do you listen carefully and, and take it to heart? Uh, when your sister or brother is in a bad mood, do you just get annoyed at them or do you ask, what's going on, what's wrong? Or if when your kids are acting up, do you just snap at them or do you try to dig deeper to find out what's stressing them out? These sorts of things might seem simple and unrelated to the big causes and issues out there in the world, but you got to remember that our homes are the training ground for compassion. We're not going to be very good at caring for people out there if we can't show care for people who are right here, the people that we say we love the most. From there, though, our circle of concern needs to extend to the wider community, especially the wider community of believers, like here at church. I mean, just think about the people in your community group. Do you see what's going on with them? Do you see the single parent who's strapped for time and energy? Do you see the man who is uh, wrestling to be committed to celibacy, even though he's attracted to other men? Do you see the woman with chronic pain, for whom every day feels like a marathon? Do you see this? And, and do you see ways that you can make their concerns your concerns, where you can come alongside them, support them, so that their burdens don't belong to them alone, but they also belong to you? From our immediate community, though, we've got to move out to even people who are different from us, who are distant from us. As, as Christians, solidarity go, goes beyond just people who are like us or who we like. If you're white, how much do you know about the struggles of black Christians in this country? Have you ever talked to your brothers and sisters about it? If you're a citizen... Have you ever had a conversation with an immigrant about their experience here? Maybe even someone who is in our church. Do you pay attention to uh, Christians around the world who are facing hostility for their faith? Uh, j- just this week I heard about one of our ministry partners in Bangladesh who is a church planter who is arrested. Do you do you have a way to hear these kinds of stories? Do you care about them? Do you see the needs of other people? Do you weep with them when they weep? Do you rejoice when they rejoice? And when I'm describing this, what I'm not talking about is this. It's not liking something on Facebook or retweeting something or wearing a wristband for a cause. Those are not bad things, but they're just the start. Those are the kinds of things that can actually fool us into thinking that we're doing more than we actually are. They give us credibility uh, without much cost. They help us feel like we care, but they don't help us feel the pain. Solidarity means more than just awareness. It means being burdened by the needs of other people. And you know a good test for whether or not you're actually in solidarity with someone a good test is how you pray for them. Uh, Christian solidarity at bedrock is prayer. And I mean real, earnest prayer. Where you get into it, where you cry out, where you shed tears for someone. Uh, Esther fasted for her people. Uh, the book of Esther is a book of feasting. There are ten feasts that are mentioned over the course of the ten chapters in the book. And right smack in the middle, Esther is there in the palace, but she is fasting. She lives in the lap of luxury where it is very difficult to feel real pain. And so she gives up food and water for three days. Why does she do that? It seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? But it's because she wants to feel the suffering. She wants to physically experience a sense of need. This is a desperate situation. It's life or death. And so like a person who is longing for food, who is starving, she wants to feel her her people's need for rescue. Sometimes there's no way, for you to get really close enough, to to, uh, bear the burdens of other people directly. And that's what fasting is for. It brings some of the ache and pain home to you. I know that uh, many of you are passionate about issues, causes it out in the world, and I wonder, are you praying for them? Have you ever fasted for someone who is in need? I'm not sure you can really be in solidarity with someone if you're not praying for them. Well, Esther becomes a hero by being in solidarity with God's people in need. The, The second way she becomes a hero is by refusing to see her circumstances as a coincidence, Mordecai points out something really important in verse 14. He he highlights the fact that God is going to bring some kind of relief or deliverance from the Jews. And maybe, he says, maybe Esther, you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. I've got a four-year-old daughter named Annalise. And over the course of the last year, we have started watching movies with her. Movies that are just a, a bit longer and more intense than, say, Curious George or Magic School Bus. Things like the Tinkerbell movie. Very intense, let me tell you. Uh, I, I've actually enjoyed Tinkerbell much more than I expected to. When we first started watching movies, though, with Annalise, she, she would get really kind of nervous at certain points in the movie. And they weren't like the scary parts. They were just parts that were a little bit tense. And, and we didn't understand what was creating the, the, the panic in her until we realized that Annalise didn't understand how movies worked. In movies, characters get put into danger and difficulty, but you know watching it that in the end, everything is going to work out all right. And so we'd have to keep telling Annalise, it's going to be okay, this is a happy movie, everything is going to work out, Tink is going to make it. We know because there are six other movies in this series, and you asked to watch every one of them. (laughs) Part of the fun of watching movies is seeing the tension, but knowing that it gets resolved. But Annalise didn't know this, and she didn't have the faith that most of us who are more experienced in movies have. You see, in movies, there is always one person who is present but never seen, the director. You can handle the danger and and tension in a movie because you know the director is putting the characters in their places. No scene is random. No event uh, is unimportant. It all matters. And in the end, the director gets what she or he wants. And in the book of Esther, God is like the director, never mentioned, never seen, but always present. The book of Esther is full of coincidences. People who end up in just the right place at just the right time, and there's this this uncanny timing that seems way too precise to be chance. And so for the reader, it becomes pretty obvious that even though God isn't mentioned, he's doing a ton behind the scenes. Just because he's silent doesn't mean he's absent. And here, what Mordecai is pointing out to Esther is this might be true for you. Maybe there is a purpose for where you are. Maybe the director has a reason for putting you in this scene. So many of us are like my daughter. We don't see our life as having a director. And so we interpret our circumstances as coincidence and chance, and we feel like God is absent from ordinary life. We think of God acting in the world, and we picture things like parting the Red Sea and a a little boy killing a giant or feeding 5,000 people with a sack lunch. And so, when there's no burning bush or voice from heaven, we just assume God's not doing anything. But what if the opposite were true? What if God was at work in the ordinary secular moments of our lives? What if your life is not a series of random events? What if the girl in the cubicle next to you, or the barista who gets your latte every morning, or your lab partner in chemistry were put in your life for a purpose? What if God works through alphabetical order seating charts in class? But when you look at the world, what do you see? Do you see randomness or purpose? Because you weren't put in the place where you are for no reason. Third way that Esther becomes a hero is that she uses her influence sacrificially on behalf of other people. Here is the defining moment in Esther's life. She's got a choice to make. She can either use her position, her influence, her privilege to protect herself or to protect other people. Now, she can either maneuver to have herself spared or she can take a risk and speak up. She makes her decision in verse 16. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She puts it all on the line. She may lose her comfort, her crown, maybe even her life. But if she is in solidarity with God's people, if, the, if their problems have become her problems, then what else can she do? It only makes sense to use whatever influence she has to help them. Well, what about you? What forms of influence do you have? Because I guarantee you have forms of influence. You've got time. You've got money. You've got relationships and connections. You've got different forms of expertise and authority in different areas. What are you using that influence for? Are you using it to protect yourself, to to work out your own comfort, or are you using it for the sake of people who need it, even if it's risky to you, even if it's costly to you? Uh, there are lots of examples. This is, this is the great thing. I've been getting to know you guys here for the last few months. And all across Christ Community Church, there are examples of people who are doing this, who are, who are taking risks, who are uh, bearing costs uh, for the sake of other people. Uh, one example from this week, I, I was talking to Lucas Moraz, who is the uh, guy who produces all of the videos that are used here in the worship services. So you've been ministered to by Lucas many, many times, and you might not have even realized it. He's a really talented guy. And he and his family have decided uh, that they had resources that they wanted to use for other people. So what they've done right now is they have a little girl, one-year-old girl, from Burkina Faso who is staying in their home. And this girl has spina bifida. And she's just here for a few months to get a surgery that isn't available where she lives in Africa. And so the Marazas have said, what do we have? What can we use in a costly way for the sake of someone who needs it? Uh, Michelle and I have also been really impressed with all of the people that we have met here who are involved in foster care, or safe families. Uh, I love hearing all of these stories, how you've looked into your community and asked the question, uh, what do I have? I've got a home, I've got stability, I've got love to give. How can I use that to give children and parents who are in a tough spot a chance to get back on their feet, to have some safety and peace in their life? Or I think about the the doctor that I talked to uh, last week in DeKalb who regularly goes to places like Haiti to perform surgeries there for uh, people who don't have access to good medical care. Or or the teachers who are working in lower paying districts because they want all children to have a good education, not just the ones in wealthy neighborhoods. Or, Or the people who take in their sick relatives into their home caring for them so that they can die in the presence of their family. Or I think of the people who are on their, on their phone every day, every night, uh, listening to their, their friends and praying for them while they're going through a messy divorce or through chemo or through some other crisis. And they're giving of their time and their, their emotion to that. What do you have to give? What risk can you take for the sake of others? What costs can you pay to bear the burdens of other people? I, I want to pause here to give just a, a little caveat about this point, though. Because I, I know that some of you are out here are in abusive situations you're being hurt either physically sexually verbally and you hear this story of Esther's self-sacrifice and we hold it up as this example and it's easy to think okay am I am I supposed to do that am I supposed to sacrifice myself in my situation and it's actually easy for people who are being abused to kind of rationalize not getting help through stories like this they say oh oh this is a sacrifice I know that it's hurting me but I'm going to stick it out for him because if I, just a little bit more love, a little bit more time, he's going to come around. I'll help redeem him. Or it's a sacrifice for my kids. If I got help, it would lead to a separation, a divorce, and the kids couldn't handle that, so I'll just keep taking it. Maybe you even think it's a sacrifice for God and you say, oh, God's put me in this place, so I'm going to submit to the situation I'm in or whatever. I want to tell you that what Esther is doing here is the exact opposite of that. Uh, Esther is taking a risk to stand up to abuse she's not accepting the silence that has been imposed on her she is finding her voice she's not accepting the abuse she's trying to end it not just for her but for her people if you are in a situation where you're being hurt by somebody a spouse a parent sibling some other relative maybe somebody at work boyfriend girlfriend Get help. I need to tell you, there is hope, there is escape, and you do not need to be silent. Uh, Come talk to someone. Come talk to someone who's on staff here at Christ Community. We will get you help. We will make sure that you have what you need. And please do not mishear me here. I am not saying that when we sacrifice for others, that means staying in abuse. Esther is trying to end it, not enable it. So Esther decides to go for the king. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She fasts for three days, she gets herself dressed up and she goes into his throne room and here is the moment of truth. What is going to happen? Well, there's a pause and the king looks at her and then he smiles and he extends to her the scepter and her life is spared. And Esther gets to plead on behalf of her people. Now, I would love to go into all the details of what happens next. It is a a fantastic rest of the story, but that would require another sermon or two. Instead, what I'm going to encourage you to do is go home and read the story of Esther for yourself. It's not a long book. You can read it in one sitting. In fact, I would encourage you to read it out loud in one sitting. Uh, It it goes really well that way. I'm simply going to sum up the rest of the story this way. In the end, God turns the tables on evil. Uh, The rest of the book is a series of incredible events. Events that seem like coincidences, but we know better. Haman's plot is exposed. The king has Haman executed. Mordecai is given Haman's old position. And then Esther and Mordecai get to issue a decree that allows the Jews to defend themselves from anybody who might attack them. In the end, the oppressed minority comes out on top and the oppressors are judged. God's people are saved. And to celebrate the victory, Mordecai institutes a holiday for the Jews. It's a holiday that Jews still celebrate to this day. It's called Purim. And this is how Purim is described in chapter 9. Mordecai records these events, and he sent, sent the letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, of giving of presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor." Uh, The book of Esther is what we call a microcosm. It's a miniature story that tells the story of the whole world. Because we live in a world that is full of evil and injustice. The forces of darkness are conspiring against the people that God loves, plotting our destruction. And so much of the time, it looks like those forces are going to win, that there's nothing we can do to stop them. It looks like God is absent. But then, at the darkest hour, when all seems lost, the rescuer comes onto the scene. Jesus was the son of God. He was the prince of heaven with all of the comfort and privilege of paradise. If there was anyone who could have kept himself insulated from the problems of other people, it was Jesus. But instead, he chooses to stand in solidarity with people in need, people like you and me. He says, I'm going to identify with you and I'm going to take your problems as my problems. I'm going to see your needs as my needs. When you weep, I'm going to weep. And at the moment of decision, when Jesus is facing the choice whether or not he's going to either go to the cross or take the easy way out, he doesn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I perish, I perish. And this is how Jesus turns the tables on evil. At the cross, at the moment when it seemed like the forces of evil had put the last nail in the coffin, that is the moment when Jesus actually defeats evil. He turns defeat into triumph. He turns agony into victory. He turns death into life. And all of this, all of this is what makes it possible for us to follow in his footsteps, to take the example of Esther seriously. The reason you can stand in solidarity with people in need is because God stood in solidarity with you in your need. The reason you can see your circumstances as full of purpose is because God, the director, has ensured that the end of the story really is victory. The reason you can risk your life for the sake of other people is because God already gave his life for you. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? We're gonna pray now. And after that, we're gonna sing a song. And as we do that, we're going to take the offering. Maybe this is an act of faith and trust you wanna take today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that you are Are the director. You're the one who has the whole thing in your hands. You put us in the places where we are for a reason. But we got to be honest. It is is so hard to believe that. It is so hard to see that as true in our lives when we are hurting. And so, God, we ask for faith. Open our eyes to see the situations that we're in as as full of your presence and grace, even when we don't hear from you. God, God, I pray uh, for people who are in really desperate situations people who are in situations where they need to get out because they're being hurt in some way. I pray that you would give them courage. I pray that you give them grace, that you would give them an opportunity to speak up, to find their voice and to get help. Give them courage. And God, I pray for all of us that we would be the sort of people who, who, who lay down our lives, who, who give sacrificially, who, who love people around us, taking on their burdens as ours, just like you have done for us. We thank you that you did send Jesus to take on our sin, to take on our suffering, to take on our death, and to give us rest from all of our enemies. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.